Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Julian Zabel Beascoa about his story, Igerilaria, which appeared in issue 21 of The Common. Julian Zabal Beascoa's stories have published or will appear in American short fiction, Copper Nickel, Electric Literature's The Commuter, the Gettysburg Review, Glimmer Train, Plowshares, and others. He earned his MFA in creative writing from the University of New Orleans. Now a visiting professor in the Honors College at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, he leads annual study abroad programs to Dinosti San Sebastian, Havana, and Madrid. Julian Zabalbeskoa, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. Could you set the scene for our conversation, describe where you're living and calling from right now? Yeah, I'm I'm over here in Donosti in in San Sebastian uh, at the moment. I'm in, I'm standing at the window, so I'm going to lay it on pretty thick if that's all right. Uh, Please so do. <laughs> outside the window, so it's eight o'clock uh, or eight fifteen now at night, which means that the sun is still high up in the sky because uh, it sets at about nine fifty uh, in the evening uh, these days. Um, so before me is the Urmea River. Uh, it's about, the, the tide is rising, so it's about halfway f- filled. Uh, the sun is just kind of like, you know, creating that, that sort of like gold foil on its surface. Uh, before me is the Maria Cristina. It's uh, one of the older hotels in the, in the city. Uh, it's a five-star hotel. Along its side, though, uh, fascinatingly, is the um, the bullet holes from the Spanish Civil War. They, they never patched them up, so they're still there. Uh, further down <laughs> is, the, uh, is the old part of the city, so you get to see the red-tiled roofs, um, steeple from the church, uh, and it's nestled up against the uh, Urgul. Um, they call it a mountain, which is kind of aspirational. It's, it's more of a hill than a mountain, but, uh, but San Sebastian has three you know, quote-unquote mountains, uh, further, you know, kind of hazy in the distance, or at least silhouetted by the sun, is uh, Igeldo. Um, and then, yeah, off to the off to the left, the the river continues into the into the mountain range. Uh, Donosti is just kind of like the old part is the, the mountains nestled up against the coast. Uh, you know, off to the right is the Bay of Biscay. So, uh, so I'm here in the summer leading uh, study abroad programs for for UMass Lowell, um, sipping on some Basque cider and, and wishing that this life could last forever. <laughs> that sounds great. I think that might be the most beautiful setting description we've already oh, oh forever had on the podcast so far. Yeah, there we go, setting the bar for for the next person. <laughs> I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure. Uh, here we go. Igerilaria, Lake Superior, 1974. A slight wind picks up and moves over the lake, clinking rocks together in the wash. 
Salvador squints into the darkness. The way his fellow construction workers talked about America's proximity, he'd half expected to sight the faintest outline of one of its city's skylines as a shimmer set deep against the horizon. Instead, there's only the night and, stretching to meet it, the mumbling water. He pulls out at the cinch of his plastic bag, checks the knots of the floaters lining its perimeter, and slides his arms through the shoulder loops. Its belly is an airtight pouch that he hopes will keep dry his few possessions. A pair of pants and a shirt to change into once he makes it to the other side. 20 American dollars he purchased at a desperate rate, and a letter of introduction to Maria Sotelo, the cousin of a Catalan Marine from his ship. She works as a corporate attorney in Chicago, but the Catalan assured him she'll help him file for political asylum. He breathes in the scent of spruce and pine, fur needles, damp moss, and soaked through branches. He supposes he'll miss Canada. Slick and uneven stones are scattered underfoot, the water temperate from the long summer days. When it's at his waist, he turns to take in the bell-shaped silhouettes of the pine trees. Behind these, the forest is an opaque jawbone rising to the east, where, months before in St. John's, the Infante Carlos docked, and he and the other Marines and Cabos were given their final shore leave, 10 hours on land. So there we are. Thank you for reading that. Would you describe what the piece is about, the plot in general, just for our listeners who won't have read it yet? Yeah, so Salvador is is about to, where uh, he's stepped into the water and he's going to swim across uh, one of uh, the Great Lakes uh, from Canada to cross the border illegally uh, into the United States. And as he's, and it's, you know, at night, and as he's swimming at night, um, you know, entering this body of water alone uh, with him and propelling him forward are, are his memories of the home that he left. Uh, so from here, we, we bounce back um, to, to 1968. He's, he's you know, several years younger, of course, uh, and the water also surrounds him there in that aspect of his childhood. Uh, and as the story progresses, uh, the two timelines ultimately you know, come together at the, very, at the very end. Perfect. I would love to know how you came to write this specific story. Like, uh, what, what germ inspired you to start work on it? What was the process like? Yeah, it uh, it, it was a it was a gift uh, from from someone I met at a wedding. Um, the way that the way that us Basques are, there's uh, we we tend to find one another in a crowd, or or be introduced. Um, you know, amongst the many, someone would be like, wait, you're Basque? I know someone else who's Basque. And, uh, and so that's what happened. I was at a wedding and, uh, and someone was like, well, you've got to meet, you know, so-and-so, you know, he's also Basque. I'm like, fantastic. Um, and, and the, the wedding had already happened. This was the after party. We were around a, a, a gigantic bonfire. And he was telling me about his grandfather who he, he's since returned to the Basque country. But uh, but this is what this is what he did. He jumped ship uh, in Canada and and he swam across the border illegally, uh, entered the United States, and um, you know met met his wife, started a family, uh, lived there for decades, and then and ultimately returned home. Um, you know during the time that that he had left, uh, Spain was uh, you know it was it was the the Franco dictatorship. Um, so, uh, 
just like my father had done, you know, left uh, dictator-controlled Spain for for better opportunities uh, abroad. So, so he told me that I was like, you know, eating it up, uh, and uh, and and a few other details from you know it was this is. I, you know, I tend to write this way, uh, you know, just, just give me enough to kind of like spark my imagination. And then that's, that's kind of what I need to, to go. Um, so I got back, uh, to Boston, uh, probably the following day, uh, and, and started working on the story. And about a week later I had a, I had a first draft of it. That's so great. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about how, how you, wove together those two timeframes in the story? You know, I think that's a tricky balancing act. And, and did you have to work at, at balancing them and, and to make sure that each one felt sort of equally alive and real? Yeah. Again, this was, this was a, a gift from this, from this person. I had, I had three details uh, that, that, that he'd given me. And the other was that his grandfather as a child would, um, you know, part of competition, uh, um, because the Basque country, like I said, is, is pressed up against the coast here. Um, you know, water is, is a part of, a part of our lives. And, uh, so he was a really good swimmer. Um, and he would, it was, it was some odd, I'm not, I'm not entirely certain exactly what the competition was, but, but they would dive for medallions, like someone would flick a medallion into the water and then they would they would dive for it, a group of boys, and whoever would would be, you know manage to catch it would would win. Um, and so that is the second scene in the story. Uh, and so so I had those two. You know, it's like okay, I've got this character who's who's entering the water at night. You know, eighteen, nineteen years old, um, and and then he kind of submerges. And it felt like a really natural place for for him as a child then to break out of the water. Um, having having claimed the the medallion, and you know, and the, the people who are who are betting on him are are these uh, uh, Spanish police who have kind of been called to the region because of the of the political unrest um, that's arisen because of uh, of of ETA. The you know, nineteen sixty eight, they begin their 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 campaign um, fighting for a for for an independent Spain against the dictatorship at that point. Um, so, so those were the two and, and it really, uh, it, it, you know, one scene would, would conclude and, and I felt like that was a natural place for it. And then, and then I'd pick up, you know, in, in the other, um, uh, the kind of, you know, what, what I would consider the present day action, which, which would be 1974, 1973. Um, and yeah, it, it felt like a really natural balance. I really didn't have to struggle too much with, with that, uh, I suppose the real, you know, for that first draft, the real struggle was then re- revising and editing and trying to keep that balance as I, as I, you know, began, uh, shaving away, um, aspects and, and including others. And, and, and that, that was really, you know, the revision is where the real work uh, came in. Uh, the, the writing of it, uh, you know, it was, it came as a gift from from this guy at uh, at the after party of a wedding, and then uh, it was written as a gift uh, from the muses. Uh, that, that that part wasn't very difficult. The the years and years of revision afterwards, that that was a struggle. <laughs> 
You've lined me up perfectly for my next question, which is about revision. Um, I know you worked on some revisions to the story with our editor-in-chief, Jennifer Acker. Um, you know, I've read earlier drafts of it. Would you talk a little bit about that process, either, either you know, working with Jen on edits, but also just, you know, how you did the edits yourself, as you said, for kind of years working on it on your own? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was somewhat revelatory, Jen's notes for... Um, for, for this story before that, um, you know, I have, I have like, I have a process which you would think that, that I would have learned better at this point, but, but after about a decade of doing this, it's, I'm, I'm, it's, it's constantly renewable and, uh, and, and I enter into it, um, as, as, as if I'd never done the thing before. So, so, you know, I, I've, honed the story, I've revised, worked on, you know, revise it for, I tend to revise the story for, for well over a year, quite oftentimes, you know, four or five. Um, and then I give it to, to my wife who is, uh, who's also an editor. Um, and, you know, people might say like, you know, you, you're your own worst, uh, critic, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but my wife is, is a fantastic uh, editor. These stories are, are always elevated, you know, after, after her notes. Um, and then I go back to it again. And, and quite oftentimes an, another year will pass of, of, you know, of working on this thing. And, and then, and then I'm quite convinced that, that the story is going to be, you know, just the second I submit it, you know, 24 hours later, like someone's, some editor is going to be thanking me so much for this and, and they can't wait to publish it. Um, and instead, what what usually always happens is, you know, I'll, I'll only submit to to a few journals, like maybe two, three, possibly four, uh, and then um, and then I'll start getting the rejections, uh, and and it's it allows me, you know, a fresh pair of eyes to the story that one would think that that I could do at this point, you know, just. Having having done this for so long, just assume that that the stories will will be rejected and and move forward from there. But but no, uh, so the stories get rejected, and and then I and then the fresh pair of eyes are are looking at this. Okay, why did a reader say no to this? What is it missing? What does it need? And 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 that process, like like I'm kind of like a like a band who rotates a song. You know, um, I, I really. I really inflicted upon upon a whole lot of stadiums and audiences of as I as I continue to to hone it and you know tighten the screws here and there. So so that was going on for several years, um, you know, and and over the course of like maybe you know a year, like like maybe like three or four you know magazines have said no to it, but it but it again allows me that 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 new perspective. Um, the problem though is that. I found with this story, and I realized only after the fact, after I received Jen's notes, is is I was really just kind of you know there with a the scalpel, um, trying to trying to get it right, just trying to refine it, trying to trying to to, to get it to sing, and and Jen's notes, you know, there was nothing, you know, well, well, the, no, I take that back. There, there were some very specific things, but 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 it was more general than anything else, and for some reason it. Uh, I was, it was a sort of aha moment for me. And I was like, okay. So essentially like I took, you know, the, the, the entire engine out of the, out of the car and I spread the parts across the front lawn 
And I was like, okay, I'm going to put this thing back together uh, now. And, and, you know, and for the, for the first time in a long time, the story really excited me after that. Um, so, so that was, that was such a gift from, from Jen, those notes, because again, it was, it was, it, it shift, it was, it was a shift that I needed, um, because I'd been kind of locked in this, you know, approaching this, the story in the revision process with, you know, with the scalpel. And I really needed to change that approach. Yeah, that is a real difficulty revision with revision in general. I definitely have experienced that where like that, that, time when you spread everything apart and, you know, take everything apart and work on it always feels like the early stage. And it's almost impossible to, to do that again at a later stage because mm-hmm. you feel like you've already got it and you've already oh, yeah. been, you know, you've already been tweaking the sentences for a year. Like I can't go back and take it all apart now. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, a great editor will always make you do that. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I you know, I'd, I'd convinced myself that this is the the form that this story needed to be in, and that these sentences, you know, had been polished so much that they that they shone, and 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 it wasn't the case at all. Um, but it really took you know Jen's eye to be able to to recognize what was working with the story, what wasn't working, and and I don't know, there was something just about uh, just about her notes that I was like, okay, like I'm going to take this whole thing apart now. Um, I was reading a lot of Kevin Barry last summer uh, when, when I received her notes, and and Kevin Barry and I are completely different writers. But but there was one thing about about his writing that I felt I could I could I I, I need I recognized I needed to incorporate into into mine, and that was some humor um, that, that that you could have humor in short stories, and and you know I, I suppose so many of us are you know if, if you read like the modernists, like they're all so serious. Uh, and convince myself that that's what good literature is, you know, even, even having like stopped reading them for, uh, for quite some time. i like, that's what literature is. And then Kevin Barry just like, like, Oh no, wait, like you could, you could have sentences be funny. You could have scenes be funny and, and, and the story will be, you know, a much more exciting read as a result. So, so again, no reader would ever read the story. I think I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. I see Kevin Barry all over this thing. Um, but, but, you know, having just, you know, tore through everything that, that he's put between two covers and, and Jen's notes, uh, both of those things at the same time allowed me to, uh, allowed me what I needed to, to take this whole, this whole story apart and, and, and put it back together. That's right. That's so interesting. So I know that you have published other stories from the perspective of Basque fighters or people living and struggling during that time period. So I'm going to ask you a couple things. It yeah. would be great if you could give us like a 20 second history or explanation of the conflict. Oh, <laughs> um, just, in case, just in case our listeners don't, um, or, I mean, you could go longer, of course, but, <laughs> but just in case our, our listeners don't have a really good frame of reference for what we're talking about. I will, I will try to be as brief as possible. So in, in 1936, uh, there was a Spanish civil war. The Basques uh, sided with the with the Republic, with the democracy. Um, it was it was a nascent democracy, um, and uh, they sided with them against uh, the, the the Franco-led military coup. Franco had assistance from um, Mussolini and Hitler, and uh, they 
made a you know a, a point of 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 destroying the Basque country, uh, Guernica, uh, Guernica as as likely most people know it. Um, you know, it was the first carpet bombing of its kind in human history. Uh, the city was was demolished, and before that, there was Durango, which was which was a test run for Guernica. Um, and that uh, sort of destruction and oppression of of the Basques continued on through the entirety of of the Franco dictatorship. Um, in response to that, uh, ETA. Uh, which was a Basque separatist group, a terrorist organization. Um, they began as, as a, you know, um, they began as college students who were trying to preserve Basque culture. It was illegal to speak, um, you know, to use Basque names for a social event. Uh, headstones and cemeteries with Basque names were being vandalized. Um, you know, Franco's idea of of Spain was was. Uh, did not include the regional distinctions that that, that make uh, this this country such a, such a wonderful, beautiful place. Um, so there was no Catalonia, there was no Basque country, right? It's all Spain, um, and the Basques who had been here long before anybody else had been, um, right? The Basque. Well, I've gone way beyond twenty cents. I just realized. no, no, it's okay. No, keep going, keep going. Um, Right. Nobody knows where the Basques came from. No one, uh, they're, they're, they're a pre-Indo-European people. Uh, they've always, you know, so long as, as there's been any sort of, even before any sort of recorded history, the Basques have been here. Um, and, and so they didn't, did not take kindly to this idea that their culture should be um, you know, made extinct uh, because of, of Franco's authoritarian, totalitarian, fascist um, uh plan for Spain. So um, a group of students were trying to preserve the culture and preserve the language, right? It was illegal to teach it. Um, and of course, if you get a bunch of college students uh, together, they're going to be, you know, talking about the situation and, and, you know, what can we do to, I'm, I'm generalizing being incredibly reductive here, but, you know, uh, how might we, we bring about the, the, the sort of change that, that we want uh, from this uh, at a, um, began first as a student organization, but there was a, a rift in the organization. Several, or a large number of, of its members wanted to make it um, a violent movement. Uh, this is the 1960s. They were they were not uh, unique. There were there were all sorts of um, uh, violent or you know military esque uprisings uh, occurring across the globe, and. Um, and in response to that, uh, you know, the Basque country be- would become the, the even into uh, with the return of Spanish democracy, would be the most heavily policed uh, region in all of Europe. Uh, so, this is the world in which Salvador, the protagonist of this story, um, you know, finds himself in, in making, you know, trying to make the decision, you know how do I behave in this? Um, his father had fought in the Spanish civil war and he's, he's not a fan of his father's and he doesn't want to fight his father's fight. Um, and yet the, the community that he comes from, you know, really leaves him very few options. Um, and so, so this is, this is what he is 
you know, he finds himself in, in, in considerable conflict. Um, should he, should he stay? Should he fight this fight? Um, should he leave home? His, his only real opportunity to leave home though requires him to uh, first enlist in the Spanish military because it was, it was a uh, compulsory. Um, everybody had to, to, to serve uh, the Spanish military for, for two years. So, you know, so his, his way out requires him to, to enter into the military, which would then, you know, uh, quite likely, uh, he predicts, um, cause him to turn against his own people. So, so this is, the, this is um, the, the, yeah, the historical context at that, at that point in the story. Mm-hmm. So how did this become a focus for you in, in your writing? Like, what, is there a reason that this is something you revisit a lot in different stories? Yeah, um, you know, I think I think I I think I fell into the same sort of trap that so many young writers do um, in my twenties. You know, for me, you know, I, I'm I'm Basque. Uh, my 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 father's from here. My my mother's family's from the French Basque country, from Iparralde. Um, it's a place I came to as a child. Um, I studied abroad here for, for an entire year when I was in college. Um, I'm part of the Basque diaspora back home. I, you know, from the age of four to 18, I, I had to do Basque dancing, um, dressed up in, in, a, in a, um, a pretty ridiculous uh, <laughs> uh, outfit, but, uh, but I'm all for it now, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, uh, and just, you know, my, my father's a, a, a rancher. Uh, my family, you know, sheep and cattle. And so that was, you know, like so many Basques who went to the United States at that, at that time. Um, so, so that was my, you know, that was my childhood uh, uh, spent. Um, it was, it was primarily a sheep. We, we didn't get cattle until I was in high school. And it, you know, it was not the sort of life I necessarily wanted for myself. And so, um, you know, you, you spend that time dreaming yourself away from, you know, from, from, from the place in which you find yourself. And in my twenties, you know, the, the, the idea that I would write about, you know, write about home and write about the place where I came from, you know, is finally, you know, in college and then, then living abroad. I was like, why would I ever dream myself back there? Like I spent my entire life, you know, trying to, trying to leave. Um, and then, you know, then that young trap that, that catches most of us, you take a look at what's being published, you take a look at what's being celebrated and you're like, okay, well, I'll write, I'll write that kind of story. You know, this is, this is what's getting the attention. You know, I'm going to be the next, you know, X, like what, you know, name, name your writer. Like, like we've all, uh, we're not, we've all, but, but many of us have, have, you know, spent a good many years, um, you know, emulating, uh, uh those that, that, that we most admire. And, and so that was my twenties. Um, and it wasn't until the tail end of them into my thirties that, uh, without really, without, um, you know, any sort of, uh, like with any, um, how to phrase this without really much intent. Uh, you know, I, I sat down, uh, from the computer and I had, I had an image, uh, in San Sebastian, a scene, and I had no idea what was going to happen next. I didn't know, I didn't know why this guy was hanging out at this cafe. Uh, you know, one scene kind of presented itself, uh, or, you know, one, really like the next moment or the next sentence, you know, follow the one that I was writing. Um, and, 
and it felt good. It was like, oh, this is, you know, this is how I used to, this is, this is how I used to write. This is how I used to dream. Um, and, you know, then, you know, that took place here in San Sebastian. And then I, I had, uh, well, you know, you, you tweeted something recently about uh, having completed your novel and, uh, I'll probably do a really terrible job of paraphrasing it. So my apologies, but that you've, you know, after so many years of, of working on it, um, you know, you've completed it, but it began with, with you telling, uh, it might've been your sister or a friend in a cafe that, that they got a really good idea for, for a piece of flash fiction. And, and all these years later, you have finally written your, you know, you, you've, you've completed your novel rather. So, you know, I have, uh, I have, like all these stories kind of stem from a moment. I could see it from the window here, uh, Paseo de Salamanca. Uh, I had a character walking down the street and, and there was a, like a new patch of concrete um, because uh, part of, of, of what Etta would do, there, there, there'd be car bombs, um, either as a warning or, or as an assassination uh, attempt. And so, so in, in you know, my fictional world, there was a car bomb that, that, that had gone off there. And, and hence the new patch of concrete. So I had a character walking down. And I was like, well, you know, I, maybe I should tell the story of, of, of how that patch of concrete got there. Um, and so, so I told that, uh, that story. And uh, it's, it's a pretty it, – it came from, from the time that I was living here uh, towards the tail end. This is, two, this is year 2000. Um, there were four uh, ETA members who were, who were um, – applying a, a car bomb underneath it or applying a, an explosive underneath a car and it, and it detonated uh, prematurely while, while they were, while they were attaching and they all died. And, you know, I thought there was something, you know, as tragic as it was, I thought there was something as uh, symbolic in that. Um, and so, so this is, you know, so I'm like, so, so I'll kind of tell that story. And of course, you know, you think that you're going to tell that story and, and, and the characters never even get to the street because as a story takes you off someplace else, um, but nevertheless, you know, you sense terrible things are going to happen to these people. And so I was like, okay, I told, I told, I told that story. Now I can get back to my, you know, to my character walking, walking down the street. He, he could continue, he could continue his walk. The poor guy's only taken a few steps. And, uh, and then, you know, a number of days later or something, um, like I see the character, I see, you know, uh, one of the, one of the people who died in the explosion, I, I see, I see her mom. And and she's trying to find her daughter uh, because the the this is Paseo de Salamanca it, it goes along the Urame River, and uh, and her body wasn't found because they they you know, the the authorities suspect that that it was blown into the river and that she died there. But but her body hasn't been uh, recovered, so so she has hope that her daughter's alive. And so so I see her and I'm like oh well I kind of need to tell this story now. Um, and so so the character is. Uh, is you know is is walking the city you know Donosti here San Sebastian and trying to find uh, trying to find her daughter. Um, and at that same time, then I see this character's uh, this this you know this this teenage girl who died in this explosion. I see I see her grandfather, who's a I, I have a you know a, an idea comes to me for a story of his during the Spanish Civil War, and uh, and so then you know what follows is years writing. Uh, writing these two timelines, uh, thinking that this would be this is going to be my book. Uh, you know, follow the follow the family and the contemporary sort of timeline, and then uh, you know, and then 
every other story. So one takes place present, one takes place, place in the past. And we follow the grandfather through the Spanish Civil War. Um, and so convinced that this is going to be the book now. But, you know, all this time I've got like these other voices, these other characters from the Spanish Civil War who want to tell me their stories. But I'm like, no, 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 no I got it. I've got this fixed idea of what I think this book is. Um, and then finally, like I let, you know, only only months ago, I kind of I kind of let go of that idea. I'm like, okay, uh, all of you, all the other characters, like like, what do you have to tell me about the Spanish Civil War? Um, and so, all this is to say that ten years later, my poor character has only taken a few steps down that street, <laughs> and I've got a completely different book. And right. and the one that follows will be, you know, th- th- this character, I'll, I'll be 60 or 70 likely by the time he actually makes it to his destination. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's so interesting. I, I do think that, uh, yeah, I've read a story of yours that I, I think is, is during the Spanish Civil War, that was the one that was in American short fiction. And um, I really loved it because uh, – it may not be super cool to like Hemingway anymore, but when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Hemingway and, um, for whom the bell tolls was my favorite book. (laughs) I was a dark teenager. Um, and you know, I just think the Spanish civil war is such beautiful, tragic, unmined territory for literature. And I'm so excited that that you're writing about it. Um, yeah. And that that these characters have been able to, to, to come forward for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it, it's been an exciting view because at, at the time I, I knew, well, I knew a bit, of course, because my, my family's village is, is next to Guernica. My cousins live in Guernica. Um, I've gone to Guernica, you know, since I was 10 or 12. Um, and so, so, so that aspect of it has always been, you know, a part of, uh, a part of my life, you know, the Spanish civil war, but, but I really didn't, know you know much more beyond that um and so you know first it was like a couple of books on my shelf of you know of and then and then it became a shelf and and now now i think it's like three or four shelves in our living room are are books on the spanish civil war um i now teach a class uh, about it at umass full you know it's it's a it's a it was a dress rehearsal for world war ii it's it's i think it's you know, it's kind of like the Empire Strikes Back of of wars, assuming that, that that you're opposed to fascism. You know, the good guys lost, um, and because of that, you know, everything else that that, that followed would. Um, and there's so many, you know, at at times it's it's at times it could be a bit a bit of a stretch, but to but to to see the parallels um, to to our present moment is you know could be pretty terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, my novel is also a historical novel. And so I, I have always found that the research can just be so, so instructive. Sometimes I swear it feels like cheating when, when you're doing research and you find out things that really happen and then you can just put them in your book. You just put them in the book. (laughs) It's amazing, but it really, you know, it adds so much richness that you doesn't have to just come spontaneously from your brain, which I really enjoy. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, some of the stories are, um, like I, I don't know. Do you, do you have you ever watched uh, that documentary, Man on Wire? Uh, Philippe Petit, uh, his. Um, I've definitely heard of it. I don't think I've watched it. Oh, it's it's a it's a fantastic documentary, but um, without really ruining anything, because because 
I think we all kind of know what happens, right? He strings up a, a, a high wire between the twin towers and he's going to do a high wire act between, between them. Um, this is 1973 and 1974, I believe. And uh, so there's a part towards the end of it where they've got the wires strung up and he says, you know, it's the worst wire they've ever strung up because they have to break into the, to, to the two towers in order to do it. Um, and he says that normally he goes to, I, I'm trying to remember exactly the, I think you pronounce like cavalidi, but I'm not sure what that, that is, but it's, you know, a, a, a high wire isn't just like one, you know, piece of, of cable. Um, you have to anchor uh, like the, it's, it's, it's kind of like, well, it is one piece of cable, but then you have to anchor it to either the ground or because they can't go all the way down to the ground um, to, uh, to parts of the towers. And so usually you go to the first cavalidi says to kind of like figure out the rope, and I'm, I'm butchering what, whatever the actual uh, word or term is. Um, and then you got to the middle, which is, you know, which can be pretty tenuous. And then you got to the third to, to you know, to get a good sense of, of exactly, you know, what the cable does. But he says, you know, in that instance, he goes out to the first and he's like, that's it. I know all I need to know. Now I'm going to dance. And so there's, so some of the stories that I've written, um, it's like that, like you just get a few a few details and you're like, okay, that's it. Like I know all that I need to know now, you know, now I'm going to write. Um, but then there's others like the one uh, that was in American short fiction. Uh, like I really do. owe, I, I really should be sharing writing credit uh, for that one with, with GL steer, who was a, a British war correspondent um, at the time. And he covered uh, the war here in the Basque country. Uh, his book is called a uh, tree of Guernica. It was recently reprinted re- or republished by, um, by Faber and Faber. Uh, and it is, it, it's an incredible piece of, of war correspondency. He is an amazing writer as the Brits were, right. They've got this, this incredible stiff upper lip and this, and just the, the sentences are gorgeous. It, it inspired the entire writing of, of, of that story. Um, so with that one, I re- like, I, I really do owe his estate, um, you know, uh, a considerable amount because because that that that, that story, or I'm sorry, that that book and his and his writing um, would not have, or the story would not have been possible without it. So you teach at the Honors College at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and in your classes, you've actually taught some issues of the Common Magazine. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about about that? Like, what what do you think are the advantages of teaching from a literary magazine? I, me and my students, we love it. Um, recommend it to, to all of the listeners who are um, who also uh, are fortunate enough to be. Um, teaching at universities um for my students it's it's the first time that that any of them have ever encountered a a literary magazine um and despite uh the introduction that that i give it uh some of them are still uh surprised that to find a you know a poem followed by a, by a short story, followed by an essay, followed by some work of art. And, and, and it takes them a little to, to, to realize that, that, that these aren't all by the same writer. Um, they're, they're, they're really like an editor. So many of them are like an editor's dream because uh, the, the, they'll read it from cover to cover, you know, following the, the table of contents. Um, I have to admit that, that I oftentimes don't do that. Um, so, 
you know, one of the like one of the wonderful things about teaching the common in particular is because it's a journal about place um, and about the way that place informs us. Um, the students, you know, will 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 acknowledge in in their essays that you know they, they some of them, not all of them, certainly, um, but some of them came from you know a, a slightly sheltered. Uh, small town, you know, Massachusetts kind of life. And, and they weren't, I mean, they were certainly aware that, that these sorts of uh, lives were lived elsewhere, but you know, it's, it's a power of, of literature to, to transport us into another person's, you know, um, shoes into their struggle, into their plight. And it's, you know, it's, it's, like those those aspirational qualities that, that we tend to, you know, give to literature that, that that it makes us more empathetic, that it opens us up to the rest of the world, um, to to you know to 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 a greater understanding of the human condition, um, to the to the lives that are lived um, in this world that we share. It's it's like that. Like it's really exciting for me because that happens so oftentimes for these students, you know, through their reading of of the common, and and then like one of the things that I do because the class that, that I that that I use the common in is is also a class about place. It is a city as text. Um, the city is is Lowell, Massachusetts, and so then um, you know the students are are tasked or given the opportunity to. Uh, to emulate or use as their as their thematic, structural, whatever it is, model, one of or several of the pieces in the common, and to create a Lowellian homage to it. Um, you know, there this it's a first year writing class for so for a good many of them they've never uh, like they've, they've they've only spent a few weeks in Lowell. Others are from nearby towns, but it, it allows them a, a, a way to approach uh, the city and to be creative. And quite oftentimes, you know, Massachusetts or UMass Lowell is um, like we have a really great engineering program. We have a really great uh, nursing program, a yeah, fantastic computer science program. Um, so, so these, you know, many times the students have, have somehow convinced themselves that they're not very creative, even though. You know, all those majors require a considerable amount of creativity. Same with the um, the professions that they'll that they'll soon be doing. Uh, so, so it's really you know, it's it's wonderful to 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 give them that space and that freedom to 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 challenge themselves and to tell a story or to or to write poems um, and to you know to reflect once more. On, on the pieces that they that they that they discovered and that they really responded to uh, in the common, so it's been it's been a joy. I've been doing it for you know for a good many years now, um, and once more to, to all of the listeners out there, uh, strongest strongest recommendation that, that that you do as well. Thank you. That was the self-promotional part of the interview where we talk about how great the common is for teachers. Um, we do have teaching resources, free lesson plans, that kind of thing, discounted subscriptions for teachers, um, which, which is how, how Julian has been teaching the, the common for these years. Um, I studied abroad when I was an undergrad, since we're talking about college, and yeah. it absolutely changed everything about my life, like the where, entire where, where, course of my life. <laughs> where were you for it? Uh, I studied abroad in London. 
Um, oh, nice. And then I, uh, I did a, I did a year cause, uh, the pro I went to Smith college and at Smith college, people usually study abroad for the whole year. Great. Um, and they do to such a degree that if you stayed on campus, there would be almost no one from your year actually on <laughs> campus. So Fantastic I think it's wonderful. Incentive. Wow, yeah. I think it should be like required. I think everyone should have to study abroad. <laughs> um, Me too. And- I, I think, I think America would be a much better place if we could somehow, uh, subsidize that, that, that experience for, you know, for, for our college students. Like, yeah. I, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the message that, that certain politicians teach, like they'll, they'll just fall on deaf ears, uh, because, cause it's, it, it becomes really difficult to be terrified of the rest of the world once you've actually encountered it. Right. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I think it's just such a, a broadening experience for students. And also, you know, I, I later, later lived in England as, as a grown up after I studied abroad. And so I also know that studying abroad is one of the only ways you can travel and stay in some of these places, like in terms of visas and things like that, you can't just decide you want to move to Italy after you graduate, you know, like education is one of the only ways you will be allowed to do that. Um, and, and you've actually taken students to, to Cuba, which is definitely one of those places where education is just about the only way you yeah. can access it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, these days especially. Yeah. What do you feel like your students gain from these programs or how do you try to make sure that the students are gaining as much as they can from those programs? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, for, I think for so many of us, you know, we, we, uh, we, we tend to, to sing the same song. Um, my study abroad experience for, for a year, my junior year of college, you know, I had the same exact uh, 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 responses as you did. Like it, I, I can't imagine my life without it. Like I'm, I'm not sure exactly, you know, the, the, the number of paths that laid before me, but after I studied abroad, you know, there were boulders before so many of them because like, no, 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 this is, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, you, 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 by encountering the world, you encounter so much of yourself, and 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 I was I was determined to to find out you know more about uh, you know after my year uh, here in Donosti in San Sebastian, um, that was it. I was off to the races. I, I spent most of my twenties uh, working uh, to make enough money to go off and travel, and. And I, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine who I would be without those experiences. Um, so, so it's, you know, it's my hope to give that to, to the students. Um, I remember this was obviously in the before times, but I remember like a New York times article in the travel section. It was like, um, and no, no, um, don't mean to offend, uh, this, this, uh, this, tourist organization i'm not sure exactly what they were but but i but i think they were like promoting transformational experiences or something like that and uh, the reporter you know signed up for it and uh he received like a you know a bunch of just a bunch of platitudes just a bunch of quotes you know trying to gear him up for this experience and then and then they just like you know filled up the days with with excursions you know between these hours you're going to go to a winery then you're going to you know hop on the back of some animal or something then we're going to take you into like an artisanal whatever Mm -hmm. um and and i'm pretty convinced that that's not where the transformation occurs you know for 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 any of these programs i lead you know we've got a framework um like I, i like to think that i'm giving them 
uh, you know, a really sturdy sort of foundation, you know, introducing them to, to the region, introducing them to, to the culture. Uh, you know, we do quite a bit of, of um, there, there's, there's quite a bit that we cover before we even take off, you know, hopefully providing them the sort of context that, that, that will give them the most from their experience here. Um, but, you know, I know enough to know that, that, that they're, you know, the, the epiphanies aren't occurring during our time together. Um, but, but I hope to be providing for them the foundation to where they can go off and they can, you know, encounter the city on their, their own and through, you know, the discovery of the city, they're discovering so much about, about themselves. Um, so that's, that's what I, that's what I hope to provide. Um, the programs are, are, you know, are pretty successful. Uh, they're pretty popular. We like, I'm, I'm running three of them here this summer. Um, there's only, there's only one other, uh, study abroad program in the entire UMass system. Um, a professor is taking a group of students to Salamanca, also in Spain. So there's that one in Salamanca. And then there's our three, uh, in San Sebastian, um, the Nosti. So, um, so yeah. And, and, you know, and then, you know, the students are like, I, I love my honor students. Um, I hope to always be able to teach, uh, uh, them they're, they're 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 so you know like we i just left them about uh an hour and a half ago we were up on uh Geld on the mountain and just you know when we're parting just uh like they're, they're they're so um thankful and they're so appreciative and, and you know and and they immediately express that and they're just so excited and you know one of them was saying you know yesterday was the because I, I took them on a pincho tasting tour of the old part. They're like, yesterday was the best food I ever had in my entire life. <laughs> and today it was the best of views I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Every day is like the best of something. Um, and, and so, so it's, it's, you know, like last year, obviously with COVID uh, study abroad was, was put to a halt and I had, I was going to be taking four groups here to San Sebastian Um uh, the university canceled uh, the the study abroad program in Madrid just as I was going through security, um, and I couldn't take students to to Cuba. And so, you know, I'll, I'll I hope hopefully I'll I'll always be a traveler. I'll always be going out into the world. So so I really wasn't lamenting um, the loss for me, but those students who you know that was the only summer, the only spring break, or the only winter that they could have traveled, and for them not to you know. Again, like like how it how it served you and, and me, just just how life affirming and, and transformational it was um, that, that that they're going to miss out on on that experience. So so my heart broke for them. I was I was trying to do all I could last summer. I was like, you know, the Basque country is actually a lot safer than America is at the moment. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. Let's say let's say I take a group over there right now, but uh, wisely the, the university um, just mm-hmm. it's like no, no, that's all right. Yeah, that is tough. You're right. I do worry a lot about the yeah the students who had to give up so much and and you know time mm-hmm. matters so much when you're that age. Um, yeah. One of our, one of our interns had to come home early. She was studying abroad in Ireland and she just had to you know drop everything and and come back. And I you know she's graduated now. That was her chance and it's over. Yeah, and yeah. and it's you know what what happens so oftentimes for my students is that they that you know they they discover that they can travel. Um, they, you know, they do get, you know, in, in this, in this age of, of infections now, they, they, they get bit by the travel bug. 
Um, and they're and they're determined to 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 chase that high. They're determined to see more of the world. They're determined to to encounter more of themselves out in the world. And so it does lead to the next um, the next adventure. And so for these students that that you know that, you know that, that weren't able to have it, and now are graduating, and will soon you know um, or quite likely now at this point. Um, you know, have a job or be entering into grad school, whatever it might be. Uh, there's a chance that that, uh, that 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 they won't be able to make it out here, um, and as a result, they won't travel as much. You know, in their adult lives, and they won't make travel a priority, and you know, they won't comp. You know, and therefore they will compromise. Um, and and you know, like I. I truly think that, that that your life will be a much more wonderful thing if you do get out there. So, so yeah, so I, I feel for that. I feel for that whole cohort who weren't able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think doing it when you're young, when everything is new and scary, is much more accessible. And uh, thinking about doing something like you know backpacking across Europe or or you know traveling to India or something like that just seems so inaccessible. If you have, if you haven't done anything like that before, you know, it feels mm. impossible. Like how do I even start planning that? How do I afford that? And then, yeah. you know, you end up just vacationing close to home, which I exactly. also do, <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah. And it's, you know, and, and, and you never know, like one trip will lead to the next and so, you know, doors will open where, where they never were before. And so, you know, that's certainly how it went for me. You know, I, I spent a year here. I went back. I finished my senior year. Uh, someone who I met uh, here, he was like, what are you going to do after you graduate? I said, I've got no idea. He says, I'm thinking about backpacking through Europe for, for five months. I was like, that sounds like the sort of thing that I want to do. Um, the two of us worked uh, absolutely crummy jobs. I was, um, I was in a tomato packing plant for <laughs> like... <laughs> four or five months just working uh seven days a week trying to get as much overtime as possible and then and then we headed out over here and then you know met you know made friends with people here you know someone's like i'm heading off to, to southeast asia next year so like sounds good well no i think i think first i had a buddy who was going down to brazil for for a fulbright so it's like brazil it is um, and then in brazil you know like might as well see as much of south america as i can and then that other, that other friend is you know, off in Southeast Asia. So I'll see you over there. Let me just, you know, make enough in order to, in order to pay for the trip. Um, and so, you know, so one leads to the next. Um, and yeah, it would, it would never have, none of those would have occurred had it, had it not, you know, it started, it started during my study abroad. Mm-hmm. So one last question that we always ask everyone, what are you working on now? What, what should we look for next from you? Yeah, so uh, like you, uh, heading <laughs> over into uh, World War II territory, um, just started uh, work not too long ago on on the second book. Um, it takes place in the French Basque country uh, during World War II. Uh, uh, the French Basque country was was uh, split. Um, Actually, there were quite a few uh, borders um, between uh, the, the, you know, Vichy France and Nazi-occupied France. But then, um, bordering those two were also the Spanish border, where people trying to leave, uh, you know, either side of France were, were oftentimes uh, smuggled into, um, which was obviously controlled by by uh, by the dictator. 
uh, Franco. And so, so it wasn't, you know, they weren't necessarily getting the warmest welcome here, but their, their chances of survival were much better than, than obviously in Nazi occupied France. And then even Vichy who were, you know, oftentimes trying to out Nazi the Nazis, uh, to prove, to prove why they should remain in their quote unquote sovereignty. Well, that sounds so interesting. I feel like, uh, you have tapped a part of World War II that we don't know a lot about, which, you know, as someone who just wrote a novel about a part of World War II that most people don't know a lot about, I feel like is very rich territory. <laughs> yeah, you would think that everything's been written, but you think? Uh, I mean, that's what, like when when I was like, okay, you know, because my character in the Spanish Civil War, that's as so many of them did, they fled, uh, they fled the dictatorship or the the, the fall of the republic, um, and and the reprisals, and and they. You know that the great retreat uh, happened over over into France, where they were not um, given a warm welcome. Right, they were put into to, to internment camps, um, called concentration camps at the time, and 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 it's a fascinating story. And so, like, I was like, okay, this is because you work on a book for so long. I don't know if this is a case for you, but it's like this is the one and only. I've got nothing after this. And then it's only as you begin to finish it, you're like, oh, that's that's what's coming up. Uh, that's what I'll be working on next. And so, you know, so then there was a bit of research, you know, you're just, you're just Googling, you know, hesitatingly, you know, like, please don't let there be, you know, some incredible novels that take place here uh, in this time. Like, I hope no one's already written this story. And then, and then it's, and, and then, and then you're, and then you're trying to actually find material on it. Uh, it's like, Oh my God, no one's really written about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so it is, it's, yeah, it's it's surprising. Well, one would think that that they've all been written, and yet um, maybe maybe we're halfway through. Yeah, maybe, well, and maybe, you and, you and I are doing our bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Julian Zabalbeskoa, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you to you and, and Jennifer Acker and the whole team at the Common for giving this story. Uh, uh, such a wonderful home uh, and an audience. I'm, I'm really, really excited by it. So thank you so much. Yeah, we're so glad we could publish it. Listeners, you can read Julian's story, Igeri Laria, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.